Thank you for tuning in to our podcast, The Top Three, which is brought to you by the History Department of the U.S. Naval Academy located in Annapolis, Maryland. In this episode and those to come, we will discuss and debate some of the key turning points, trends, and major figures in world history. We do so with the understanding that history is often a matter of controversy. Our goal is to explore the varied landscapes and seascapes of the past in the hope of shedding some light on how the present world came to be. In the studio today are our three co-hosts, Lieutenant Mac Anderson, U.S. Navy, Lieutenant Commander Andy Cox, U.S. Navy Reserves, and Associate Professor Thomas Burgess. All of us are instructors and lifelong students of history. In this first episode of the Top 3, we'll discuss and consider the top three military disasters in modern Western history. To define things a bit, we're focusing on the West in the late Middle Ages to today. Each co-host will offer two contenders for the list. And then after everyone has had their say, we'll narrow the list down from six to three. We may need to do a little bit of horse trading in the discussion. To start us off, Tom presents us with two entries, one quite familiar to history buffs and the other deserving of the disaster moniker for other reasons. Uh, Thank you, Andy. Yes, the one that's the most obvious is Napoleon's invasion of Russia. By 1812, Napoleon was arguably at the peak of his power. By defeating Austria, Prussia, and Russia, he had redrawn the map of Europe so that most of what is now Italy and Germany consisted of loyal client states. While the war in Spain was at a standstill, the French Empire possessed the resources and military assets to maintain its continent-wide hegemony for at least a generation. But then Napoleon got into a silly spat with the Russians over trade. Had he not imagined himself invincible, he wouldn't have ever invaded Russia. He wrongly assumed this campaign would be like so many others. He'd win a battle or two and then impose terms. He learned nothing from his Iberian adventure. The Spanish had risen up against the French and simply refused to surrender. Napoleon invaded with the largest and best army in European history, nearly 600,000 men. Yet the Russians practiced a scorched earth policy, which meant that even when the French managed to occupy Moscow, their fighting strength was reduced by over half. Then came the burning of Moscow and the bitterly cold French retreat, which saw their numbers reduced to about one-fifth. Though Napoleon managed to raise a brand new army, he was now fighting all, all four of Europe's great powers. His failed invasion of Russia made his personal downfall and the collapse of the French Empire almost inevitable. Had Napoleon not invaded Russia, it is likely the French would have continued their domination of continental Europe and prevented the unification of both Germany and Italy later in the century. And without a united Germany, Europe would not have experienced two world wars. All right, guys, any thoughts or comments about that? Yeah, Thomas, I think this is a a classic example of... uh, why nations should never invade Russia, right, especially during, during the winter. Uh, I will say, if you look at David Bell's great book, The First Total War, he includes a, a pretty solid uh, political justification for Napoleon's invasion of Russia in that he was trying to prevent Russian expansion into Poland and other Eastern European countries. So the only, the only critique I would have on this entry is that While I agree that this was a a complete military disaster, uh, I think some would argue that Napoleon did have valid political justifications for trying to knock back the Russian Empire. 
Yeah, there's not a whole lot I can add to that. I think it's pretty obvious that one belongs on the disaster list. <laughs> well, I agree with you. Thank you, Andy. Um, let's move on to our second, my second entry, the Fourth Crusade. So the Crusades were meant to protect the Christian world from Muslim attacks and, if possible, reconquer lands lost to them in previous centuries. Some, like the First Crusade, were spectacularly successful. Others were pretty much a dud. But even when they were a dud, they didn't actually weaken Europeans' ability to defend themselves from further Muslim assaults. The major exception was the Fourth Crusade, which turned out to be a holy disaster. Through a rather unflattering series of events, the men of the Fourth Crusade decided that instead of attacking Muslim Egypt, they were going to attack Constantinople, the capital of the Christian Byzantine Empire. For over 500 years, this empire had single-handedly kept the Muslim armies out of Central Europe. Keeping them out were the walls of Constantinople, which had witnessed, withstood siege after siege. But then in 1204, the Crusaders pulled off the seemingly impossible and then plundered the ancient city of its wealth and holy relics. Though the Byzantines survived and would reconquer the city in 1261, their once mighty empire was permanently weakened and unable to withstand waves of Turkish assaults, which would lead to centuries of Ottoman Turkish control of southeastern Europe. Thus, if the Fourth Crusade was meant to defend and even extend the boundaries of the Christian world, it achieved exactly the opposite. It meant millions of Greeks, Bulgarians, Serbs, Romanians, and other peoples would have to wait until the 19th century for their liberation. All right, there it is. Any, any feedback, comments? I like this inclusion on the list. I think it's an innovative idea of the term military disaster. Um, because the army that we're talking about, the Crusaders, doesn't get defeated in the field or slaughtered. Instead, they hit the wrong target way too hard. And it's not a disaster for the Fourth Crusaders themselves, but it's much more of a disaster for Western Christianity. It can't really be overstated how important the sacking of Constantinople was to the, the greater degradation of the Byzantine Empire. This was a landmark event. Yeah, and those who plundered the city in uh, 1204, like the Venetians, they would suffer the consequences later on. They would fight several disastrous wars with the Turks uh, and actually lose one of the world's longest sieges, the Siege of Hania in the 1600s in Crete. So the Venetians would lose blood and treasure, uh, immense blood and treasure, because of this uh, disastrous mistake in 1204. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought up Hania, right? And thankfully that city's recovered. And I'll tell you, if you ever go, great place to get a beer out there and have a good night out. So at least one city has recovered from uh, the disastrous uh, impacts of the Fourth, Cru Fourth Crusade. I've been there as well. It's a beautiful city. Uh, now, at least. Yes, no longer a ruin. Okay. Um, after the interlude, after the pause, we will now hear from... Uh, Andy Cox, who will give us two further entries to our list. Okay, so for my entries, I considered what we meant by disaster, and I decided 
it had to mean more than just a high body count or bad planning, though these are usually hallmarks of military disasters. For me, a military disaster isn't just a setback in one campaign, but something with wide-ranging consequences and usually influences events well outside the battlefield. And with that in mind, two events easily came to my mind. First is the Battle of Saratoga in the American Revolution. So in the early summer of 1777, General Johnny Burgoyne of the British Army is about to lead a force of 9,000 British regulars and 3,000 Germans south from Canada into New York on what he believed is the key campaign to win the war. Burgoyne's goal is to conquer the strategic Hudson River Valley and then split the northern colonies. By October, a combination of overconfidence and bad decisions, miscommunications and operational setbacks left him and his army stranded in the wilderness outside of Albany, alone, hungry, and surrounded by twice as many continental forces and militia. After failing to break out of a 21-day siege, Burgoyne was forced to carry out the first surrender of British troops in history, and to a colonial army, no less. Now, the significance of Saratoga lay in its political consequences, much more than the tactical and strategic realms. The news sent shockwaves through the British army and government and halted British plans to conquer New York. And it also freed up the Continental troops up there for use elsewhere. Saratoga showed the Americans could defeat the British in the field, which inspired American troops after a year full of Continental disasters. But Saratoga also encouraged France to make an alliance with the colonies and send desperately needed military aid and money. Without this French assistance, there would have been no Rochambeau, nor Yorktown. It's not exaggerating to say that without Saratoga, King Louis XVI may never have been convinced to join in an alliance. French entry to the war also led to the British having to fight all over the world, distracting and siphoning off troops and warships that could have been used in America. Battles like Saratoga, and the success of the American Revolution inspired colonial uprisings around the world from Europe to Latin America afterward. Well, Andy, I'm baffled. I'm sitting here shaking my head. Uh, you're a naval officer, and you didn't mention the Battle of Valcour Island, which allowed this setup for Saratoga and the victorious uh, colonial forces. But I guess I shouldn't expect that from a naval aviator and not a swell. So uh, that's, that's all I've got to say for Saratoga. Well... I did consider Valcour Island, and it's true that that had an impact on the British, at least. Valcour Island happened, as you know, on the, on the lake uh, the year before, and the really the upshot of it was that it delayed the British advance into New York for a year, and the, they changed commanders from Carleton to Burgoyne. Um, but I still feel that like the, the campaign of Saratoga itself uh, was was separate enough. You you certainly can't leave Valcor Island out of it, but I felt like Burgoyne himself was such a, a, a distinct, disastrous planner and executor of this. He he kind of deserved most of the spotlight. Yeah, Andy, I think you rallied very well from that vicious attack. And uh, so I'm not going to come down too hard on you here. I'm just going to, to say that you're very right in pointing out how much the Battle of Saratoga widened this war, and the British were now having to fend off the French in the Caribbean. Uh, at, this, at this point in the 1770s, the French had a relatively formidable navy able to harass the British in their lucrative island plantation colonies of Jamaica and Barbados, and uh, et cetera. And these were, in many ways, more profitable 
colonies than something like Pennsylvania, consisting mostly of backwoods farmers who contributed relatively little to the imperial economy, at least compared to the sugar plantations of Jamaica. So this was hitting Britain in its pocketbook, the, the harassment of the French Navy in the Caribbean, and it, it multiplied the costs for the British monarchy to uh, continue this war. So I, I, I endorse your, your inclusion on this list. Thank you. Well, okay, that brings me then to my second entry, which is the Gallipoli campaign of World War I. So fairly early in the war, as the Western Front starts to bog down into stalemate, Russia asked the British and the French to relieve pressure on the Eastern Front and establish an economic sea link through the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. The Allied answer, which was led by high British government figures like Winston Churchill, was the Gallipoli campaign. This was a joint Army-Navy venture, including troops and warships from both nations and around the British Empire, particularly Australia, New Zealand, and India, aimed to take control of the Dardanelles and Bosporus Straits and threaten Istanbul, potentially knocking the Ottomans out of the war entirely. What was supposed to be a quick, easy naval assault and amphibious invasion in April of 1915 turned into trench warfare on beachheads against determined Turkish resistance. The Allies withdrew in January 16 after both sides suffered hundreds of thousands of casualties and a comprehensive failure. The true extent of Gallipoli's failure had massive implications, though. It was a display of Allied ineptitude, and it cemented this theme of World War I in Western minds. It led to the fall of the Asquith cabinet in Britain and Churchill's own resignation. He ended up uh, leaving government and led a uh, battalion of infantry in France after this. The failure to open the sea link to Russia meant that there was no relief for the Tsar's army or for the Russian economy, which continued to decline until the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. The shared hardships bound the Australian and New Zealander troops and public together, and some historians mark this as an important experience in the transformation of Australian and New Zealander identities toward eventual independence. And finally, Gallipoli reinforced a lot of negative views Western militaries held about amphibious operations in general, and it would take years of U.S. Marine Corps studies and tests on that campaign to rectify problems in time for World War II's Pacific Theater. Yeah, Andy, I think this is, this is probably one of the best entries uh, we've got because you can't underestimate that cultural aspect. You talked about the identity, shaping of the identity of the New Zealanders, the Australians. There's a whole song dedicated to the, the disasters of the Gallipoli campaign. Uh, the band played Marching Matilda. Talks about the hardships that these men faced on the beaches, not only fighting, but when they got home as well. Uh, legs gone, arms gone, mental health gone. Uh, so certainly the, the cultural identity impact of this campaign can't be underestimated. Yeah, and speaking of the cultural impact, one of the greatest war films ever made was Gallipoli by the Australian director Peter Weir. It's a, just a fantastic study in the utter futility of this campaign. And which brings me, I guess, to more of a comment, maybe a question, but is why didn't they cite the landing of their amphibious operation further north along the Thracian coast? That would have given them some elements of surprise. Instead, they landed at the most obvious place, Gallipoli itself. That would be one question. I Maybe it's a, an unanswerable question, but that's, it seems like in hindsight that would have been a better thing to do. Well, the goal of the campaign was to seize the waterway straits. Uh, and at first they tried this through a naval assault, but that was pretty quickly turned back by Turkish artillery and mines. And so the next 
step in that was to land troops to seize the peninsula and get rid of that artillery and, and those Turkish positions themselves, um, which also then bogged down. Your comment about the landing sites then, uh, being poorly chosen is taken, uh, though, because some of these some of these units ended up landing well off of the planned beaches that the Allies had scouted out, particularly the Anzac, Australian New Zealander units, landed about a mile out of where they were supposed to have been. And instead of easy terrain getting off the beach into the highlands, they were stuck basically at a very sheer face uh, and ba uh, right on the beach side. Yeah, let me just make one, make one more comment, and that is that uh, this campaign led to the mythological career of Mustafa Kemal, who would go on to become the father of modern Turkey. The, Turkey, the Turks came from this war with a genuine war hero. Mustafa Kemal rallied the resistance at Gallipoli. He was in command, and people rallied, the Turks rallied to his cause following the war when they found much of the Turkish or Anatolian heartland now occupied by the French, the British, the Greeks, even the Italians for a while, the Armenians, etc. So this campaign was key to the making of Mustafa Kemal. Well, thanks. Next up, we'll hear from Mac about his two entries, which bring in some of the best, maybe worst, examples of ambition paired with bad military planning. Welcome back, folks. So, as uh, some of you may know who are listening, I'm a surface warfare officer, and for my non-Navy folks, that means I like ships, right? I like big ships. I like big boats. I like things that sail on the water. Uh, so today, both of my entries are focused on ships and naval, uh, naval strategy. So the first one is rather unconventional. It didn't lead to massive loss of life. It didn't lead to a really significant change uh, in overall force laydown. But those are Tirpitz's naval laws prior to World War I. So as we all know, World War I was simply caused by the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, right? Well, not quite, not according to some scholars. In an alternative reading of history leading up to World War I, it was really the unbridled naval race between Germany and Britain that was a key factor in why and how World War I began. The key to understanding this interpretation of history is delineating Germany's primary and secondary strategies for finding its place in the sun. Beginning in 1897, Kaiser Wilhelm II and Secretary of State for the Navy, Grand Admiral Tirpitz, introduced a number of laws to the Reichstag with the express purpose of building a German fleet capable of taking on the power of the British Royal Navy. Wilhelm II and Tirpitz were both proponents of American naval theorist Alfred Thayer Mahan, and they heavily bought into his theories about sea control and naval power. This set into motion events which would culminate in the construction of the HMS Dreadnought and a formal naval arms race between Germany and Britain. As the arms race accelerated, Germany passed three additional naval armaments laws in 1900, 1906, 1908, and 1912, each of which attempted to surpass British naval power. It could be said that Germany's first best strategy in the late 19th and early 20th centuries was overseas colonial expansion. Wilhelm II and Tirpitz both drew inspiration from Mahan regarding the importance of overseas colonies to national power. With an arms race set in motion, however, Britain quickly utilized her mature shipbuilding industry and capitalized on the maritime culture of her people to continuously outpace Germany, a historically continental power. In the end, 
the national treasure poured into Germany's naval expansion simply went to waste following the Battle of Jutland, and Germany's great battleships were left to rust in Wilhelmshaven for the rest of the war. It is conceivable that without Germany's aggressive naval expansion in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, that Britain could have been convinced to stay out of the Triple Entente and that Germany could have funneled additional money into its historically more robust ground forces. Had Germany abandoned its plan for a grand high seas fleet, World War I could have taken a radically different path. I like this entry to the list, Mac. Um it pushes the definition of military disaster, or at least pushes me to rethink it a bit. Because um, even though this doesn't necessarily involve a battle or a campaign, it definitely deals with uh, the consequences of, of military planning. Um, I guess the disaster part for me is the fact that Jutland is this really inconclusive battle, the only real naval battle of, the, of World War I. Uh, and the disaster for the Germans is that they never use that fleet again and they just kind of rust until they're scuttled after the war. Yeah, and for those of you who are not familiar with uh, Annapolis, but Alfred Thayer Mahan is kind of a big deal around here. We have the Mahan Auditorium and, and so for better or worse, he's exercising this huge influence over world affairs by influencing the Kaiser and his his sea lions to, to build up the, uh, the German Navy uh, prior to World War I, which some would say, yeah, foolishly uh, provoked the British into siding with the French and Russians. Not for any, any ideological affinity. The French were, was a republic. The Russians were you know, a, a monarchy, but purely to contain Germany's ambitions, in this case, to challenge the British supremacy on the high seas. So that's an interesting point that you, that you raise. Yeah, thanks, Andy and Thomas. And I might get chased off the yard for saying this, but it's also somewhat of a disaster for Mahan, right? His strategy, his theory, was pretty much disproven at Jutland when the two forces were unable to really go at each other's throats and engage in the decisive battle that Mahan foretold. So not only a disaster for Germany, but also a slight hit in Mahanian strategy and the validity of that. Uh, for our second entry, again, going back to the ships, I'm going to talk about the sinking of the Spanish Armada in 1588. So you want to invade England and depose the queen, huh? How about I destroy your fleet first? That is undoubtedly what Queen Elizabeth I said when she learned of the Spanish Armada sent by King Philip II to invade England and claim the English throne in the name of Catholicism. Philip sent 130 ships under the command of the Duke of Medina Sidonia, a wholly unexperienced mariner to meet up with ground forces in the Spanish Netherlands under the command of the Duke of Parma. The massive armada was spotted as it rounded the Bay of Biscay and sailed, sailed past Plymouth Harbor on the coast of Devon. Sir Francis Drake sortied the English fleet and engaged in inconsequential combat for five days. The Duke of Medina Sidonia, recognizing that his ships were running low on ammunition and still needing to pick up the ground reinforcements, decided to anchor near Gravelines, approximately 25 miles southwest of Dunkirk. Drake, sensing an opportunity, loaded eight ships with heavily flammable material, set them ablaze, and directed them towards the anchored armada. Knowing the destruction that these fire ships could cause, the Spanish armada weighed anchor and set sail although in a haphazard and disorganized fashion. At this point, the English fleet attacked the disorganized armada in earnest while simultaneously blocking the westward route through the English Channel. Lacking organization, 
taking casualties, and having failed to get the ground forces from the Spanish Netherlands, the call was made to retreat back to Spain. The only route home, however, was north. The Armada rounded Scotland while experiencing one of the worst storms in decades. By the time the Armada arrived back in Spain, half of the original ships were destroyed and 20,000 men had perished. A commemorative coin was struck in England with the phrase, God blew and they were scattered. Scattered indeed. Following this failed expedition, Spain lacked the resources required to prevent English intervention in the Spanish Netherlands and to stop English privateers on the high seas. All right, what do you guys think? I think this one's also very deserving of the title of a military disaster. Uh, nothing says disaster like putting a snappy quip on a coin after such an event. Um, and I also think the inclusion of pirates in any story makes it more interesting. And Francis Drake is one of the most interesting figures around this time period. I guess I have a question, which is, um, was this just a, another sea battle for the, for the Spanish, a botched invasion, or was this an existential crisis for the Spanish monarchy? Certainly some could consider this an existential crisis. It didn't result in the downfall of the monarchy, but Spanish naval power never recovered after their destruction, uh, either off of Dunkirk, uh, off of Scotland, or as British ships continued to chase them down, right? Uh, so uh, somewhat of each, I think, uh, both a, a naval uh, crisis and to a degree, it, it severely crippled the power of the Spanish monarchy. All right, thanks guys for your input. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be trying to decide which of these six events that we've discussed are going to make it into our top three list, and I'm pretty confident that both of mine will be up there. See you soon, guys. Welcome back, and now we enter the next phase where our list entries square off for who is the most infamous. We have six, we need three. And you're welcome to critique each other's choices or explanations of the events. While we've all got differing opinions, we should end up with a consensus. So, gents, who's the first to get cut, or who's definitely in? Okay, I'll get, I guess I'll kick this off by saying that I'm willing to sacrifice one of my two entries, the Fourth Crusade. I'll put that on my B list, and but I'm, I'm really confident and proud of my other entry, Napoleon's Invasion of Russia. So that's throwing the gauntlet down on you guys there. I'll just say, Thomas, much like Patton, uh, I've learned to never give any ground. So uh, weak move right off the bat, giving up one. I think the dichotomy between Napoleon's disaster in Russia and the Fourth Crusade actually plays into that. I find the Fourth Crusade to be the weaker of the two on that, uh, of those two as well. Can you guys uh, sacrifice one of yours or? I gotta say, Mac, um, I like the idea and, and what, what the Tirpitz laws push me to rethink about military disasters, but it's harder to put a pin in that one because there are so many other moving parts and it's, it's much more conceptual than a straight campaign or, or battle or series of decisions. Um, I like the Spanish Armada. I have trouble with the Tirpitz laws. Trouble with a conceptional entry on this list. Oh, boy. Uh, no, joking aside, um, I, I agree that uh, when we look at the numbers, when we look at kind of the overall impact on the country at, in question, that the Tirpitz's naval laws, while fascinating to me, my favorite historical subject, uh, are likely the weaker entry on that list. 
it just raises the question, would the war have happened anyway? Was the war inevitable between Germany and, and other powers in Europe, even without the Tirpitz laws? Yeah, uh, give me a time machine. I'll go back and change some things around, and we'll run some experiments to see uh, whether it was inevitable. I like what it adds to the conversation about was World War I inevitable and what caused it, though. That's definitely something I'd, I hadn't considered as much before. Yeah, and an important question that, that should be brought up more, more than it is. Maybe a new episode on that, yes. That is a great, great idea, Thomas. I think I, should, I would definitely vote that Napoleon's campaign to Russia should absolutely be on the list, if not number one, number two, personally. You can't have a list of mistakes without talking about somebody invading Russia. That's, uh, that's a classic move for historians, so I, I agree. Uh, it, whether it's Hitler, whether it's um, Napoleon, somebody's going to invade Russia and it's going to end up uh, as a bad time. So I, I agree with, with Napoleon's inclusion. Do either of my entries spark any immediate positive or negative reactions? Besides my uh, very negative reaction to your failure to include a discussion of Valcor Island, um, I, I think both are valid. I am drawn more towards Gallipoli, right? Mostly for the cultural impact, uh, the ways in which Gallipoli was talked about, not only in the immediate after-war period, but it helped shape uh, U.S. Marine Corps strategy going into the, these massively important island-hopping campaigns in the Pacific, uh, and, like you mentioned, shaping identity of New Zealand and Australia. Yeah, well, it's also possible that had the Gallipoli campaign succeeded, there would have been a supply route uh, made between Russia and her allies, and Russia could have survived this war intact and not succumbed to revolution, and the whole outcome of the war might have been changed. But it's one of those counterfactual questions we'll never really have the answer for, but it does cause some speculation there. Let me ask you guys this. In terms of consequences and effects, which of the three has the biggest between the Spanish Armada, Gallipoli, or Saratoga, do you think? I think Saratoga has uh, maybe a rightful claim on our top three list just because the consequences are so vast. Until this time, this was arguably a failing rebellion uh, on the part of the 13 colonies, but Saratoga changed everything. Uh, as we said before, the French came in on our side on that conflict. It widened the war. It imposed insurmountably high costs on the British Empire to continue fighting eventually. That's what decided the war. It wasn't necessarily one particular battlefield loss. It was the huge costs imposed on the empire because of this conflict. And then Saratoga really was decisive in that sense. And of course, the United States has undoubtedly exercised you know, huge world influence in the 20th century. So that should be factored into our decision. And plus, but then again, the, the question is also, to what extent was the British empire you know, kneecapped by this this uh, disaster at Saratoga or, or the loss of the 13 colonies. It's, you know, the British Empire went on to conquer India and much of Africa, and its, its most remarkable period of expansion, arguably, was still to come. Absolutely. And it's not like the Saratoga defeat, while shocking, stops them from continuing to try to dominate the colonies. The war continues on for years. But I also think that's a very interesting point about how Saratoga may have eventually caused the loss of the war, but it's not like the British Empire is particularly uh, kneecapped by it. 
The other thing to bring up with this uh, Battle of Saratoga is the fact that the American colonies were some of the least economically productive of the entire British Empire. If you look at uh, Dr. Vincent Brown's book, uh, Tacky's Rebellion, we see this chart that shows that compared to places like Jamaica and other areas in the Caribbean, the American colonies were pretty, uh, pretty much worthless to the British in terms of economic productivity. So I know we three as Americans, uh, we often think of uh, America having the central place in the, you know, as the crown jewel of the British Empire, but that simply wasn't true. Okay, well then if Napoleon is definitely on the list and Saratoga is definitely on the list, Who's going to get the coveted third spot? We still have Gallipoli, we still have the Spanish Armada, and we still have... We, uh, I'll cut Turpets. So Spanish Armada and Gallipoli. And it looks like Andy and I both have a horse in this race, so let's turn to our third party, Thomas. What are your thoughts between these two? Yes, the egghead civilian. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would actually say that the Spanish Armada, as disastrous as it was for the Spanish... Uh, did not pose an existential crisis for the Spanish monarchy because they had this seemingly endless supply of wealth coming from the silver mines of Bolivia, from Potosi. They could rebound from this, from this uh, disaster relatively easily. Uh, and so I would strike the Armada from our, our list personally. I think I'm going to agree because it's like the Spanish Armada really fits the model of this was a disaster, but it is, in terms of long-term consequences, it is a fairly contained disaster compared to Gallipoli, which you can argue leads to the destruction of an entire empire in Russia. It's not the only thing that leads to that, but it is, it is an important contributor. Um, yeah, so for my, for my vote, it would be Napoleon, Saratoga, Gallipoli, but uh, those are two of mine, so. I have no problem with that. I can see the layout of the battlefield, gents. I will, I will concede my second entry on the list, and it looks like we've come up with our top three. Uh, so I came into this segment confident that both of my entries would be on there, and lo and behold, found myself on the historical chopping block. I will concede that the Spanish Armada gets uh, best mention. It is, it is just off the bronze medal podium. <laughs> Well, folks, thanks for joining us today. Today we discussed some truly significant military mishaps in modern Western history, from Napoleon's futile invasion of Russia to the sacking of Constantinople during the Fourth Crusade, from Germany's failed attempt at surpassing British naval power before World War I to the impressive destruction of the Spanish Armada, and from the British defeat at Saratoga to the disastrous amphibious invasion of Gallipoli. While there's plenty more to debate on this topic, We'll save that for a few rounds of beers between friends. We hope we have inspired you today to discuss some of these historical events yourself. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's topics. From all of us here at the Naval Academy, and especially in the Naval Academy History Department, thanks for tuning in to the top three.